session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, studio number 310-441-0555. Before I begin, the show has some announcements. And the first one I'm very excited about, um, and that is that I'll be doing my first cruise with commercial travel this coming March, March 9th through 12th. Uh, leaving from Long Beach, going to Ensenada. But I'll be doing my own cruise with seminars, and we're bringing other professionals on board to discuss topics like business and marketing and the law, and also have some entertainment for the people there. That should be a lot of fun, and I'm really, really excited. We um, had talked about it for a little bit, but just got off the phone with Lily from Commercial Travel to, to finalize that we can go ahead with it, and we're going to do that. So very excited to announce that. Again, that's March 9th. 12th. Um, you can already start booking now with commercial travel at 800-800-1991 or 818-883-8100. And that's the numbers for commercial travel. Um, all programs will be in English. Of course, music might be in Persian also, uh, for those of you who want to enjoy some Persian music. But uh, we hope to see you there. I'm really excited. I'll be doing a few seminars, a few question and answer sessions. Um, and again, there will be other people on board that you could learn from as well. So very excited about that. March 9th through 12th, uh, book now with commercial travel at 800-800-1991 or 818-883-8100. So really excited about that. And I'll give more updates uh, as we figure out some of the details, but wanted people to have the information so they can already sign up now and join us on that trip. I um, also wanted to um, mention that Susie Khatami uh, dropped off the toys at Mattel's Children's Hospital, and she sent me some audio that I didn't really get a chance to queue up here to, to play it, but with some of the employees there and the staff there at the hospital dropping off the toys, and they were very grateful uh, of everyone who donated the toys, as they mentioned, during this very tough time for children. It's always tough to be a child in the hospital, but especially during the holidays. So thank you again to everyone who donated gifts. Um, they were dropped off today. And thank you again to Susie Khatami and everyone at Mattel's Children's Hospital for allowing this to happen. I'm sure we'll be doing it again next year. So thank you to everyone who donated gifts. Um, before I continue, I wanted to announce the book of the week also for this week. It is Eric Fromm's book, Man for Himself, An Inquiry into the Psychology of Ethics. And um, I actually had not read this book by him. I've read a few other ones, and I definitely wanted to, but also Sahand, uh, a listener and friend, gave me the recommendation. So thank you for that. I'm glad to include this in the books of the week. 
um, which, as I mentioned before, likely will continue next year as well. I said I was going to do it for this year, but I think I'm enjoying the process. It's been helping me, and I hope listeners are enjoying it as well. So feel free to send recommendations for books for the week that I can use uh, in 2018 as well. But again, this week's book, Eric Fromm, Man for Himself, and uh, I read about, I don't know, 20, 25% of it, and it really is amazing. I'm reminded why he's one of my favorite thinkers of all time, and I've learned so much from reading his books. So I hope you'll join me in reading that in the discussion, which will actually be on Wednesday's show because uh, this coming Monday will be Christmas, so it won't be a, a live show. So I'll be talking about that next Wednesday. All right. Now, I wanted to start off the show today, a topic that has been on my mind um, for some time, some aspects of it, but because previous shows I've had guests or callers, I didn't get a chance to talk about it, but I wanted to talk about that today. And that is arguments or disagreements that we have. This is a topic that comes up a lot, especially when it comes to romantic relationships, because as we know, it's not if you fight, it's how you fight. Every relationship is going to have difficulties, going to have struggles, it's going to have arguments. Uh, if you don't have arguments at all, something is missing. And maybe I should clarify, because when I tell people this, sometimes I think when I th- say a fight, they mean it has to be ugly or nasty or mean. And that's not at all what I'm talking about. We're talking about disagreements, feeling upset, feeling hurt by our partner. These things are inevitable. And if we're being open with ourselves and with our partners, we're going to express feelings of discontent to each other. It's necessary. And actually what I'm saying is exactly the opposite of that, that the fights have to not be ugly and disrespectful and mean. Yes, you're going to be angry. Yes, you might not be as kind and sweet and loving as you normally are, but we want to make sure we never reach into the level of disrespect, uh, of emotional abuse, of physical abuse, of saying mean things to each other to hurt each other in a very deep way. We want to be careful about what we say. So that's what we mean when we say it's not if you fight, it's how you fight, because that makes the world a difference. But what I wanted to talk about today was uh, looking at an argument or a fight at a deeper level, because we all know a lot of times when we fight and you ask a couple, what did you guys fight about? They might not even remember what the fight was about or what started the fight, because usually that's not the issue, or it might have been the start of the issue, but it's not really the main concern or what really was going on. So here in the States, we talk a lot about husbands and wives fighting over the trash and who, you know, taking out the trash. But really, we know that the garbage and the trash is not the key issue, but it could turn into a blow-up fight, and it seems like we're arguing about the trash, but that's not really the case. So what we always want to do is to try to look deeper at what's going on. And sometimes while the fight is happening, while the argument is going on, it might be too difficult to do that. We might be too heated, too much emotion going on, and we might be too engaged with what's happening to really take a deeper look. Ideally, we'll start to be able to do this once we practice it some more, but let's just assume we weren't able to do do that in the moment. We want to look back at what happened. So you want to look at at least three different elements or dynamics that are at play when you're having an argument with your spouse, or of course could be in any relationship. The first one is yourself and what issues you bring into this argument. What might the thing you're fighting about mean to you? Is there some deeper underlying insecurity, sensitivity, something from your past that's being triggered with what's going on now? 
Because often people will have an argument and you realize you get so heated about something that seems not that significant. And that should be a clear indicator that what you're feeling isn't about just what's happening in the moment, but it's also something from your past that's being triggered. So you want to reflect on yourself. What might be happening within me? Or what might this argument or fight have to do with my own past or history? Who might I be imagining at this moment? Who might I be transferring onto my partner at this time? My mom, my dad, sibling, a teacher, someone else, somewhere where I have some unresolved issues. Because more than likely you'll realize somehow, some way, you're putting some part of your unconscious past onto your partner and onto this argument. So we have to really take a clear look. And this can be difficult to do because when we're in an argument and fight, we think it's completely our partner's fault that we feel this way. It's completely my partner's wrongdoing that makes me angry or hurt or upset or whatever it might be that I am feeling. And as a result, we just want to leave the blame on them, but not recognize that, you know what, this could be something about me. I need to take a look at myself and look at what's going on for me in this moment. Then, of course, the other element is your partner and their issues. Now, with this, we have to be careful because we can't tell our partner or we have to be aware of how we tell our partner, oh, I think you're mad at me because this is like your mom or your dad. You can, but the way you bring it up is going to be very uh, important because more than likely that sounds like an attack. It can be a conversation, hopefully, where you're both going back and forth trying to explore what just happened in our fight. Um, and when I say what just happened, maybe wait a little bit till you both cool down before you have this kind of conversation. But you can hopefully both be reflecting on what might be going on for both of you. So, of course, there's both partners, and now your partner has to reflect, okay, what might this uh, fight represent for me? What unresolved issue do I have from my past that I'm projecting onto this fight? What um, unresolved issue with another person in my past do I have that I'm now putting onto you, that I'm making it about you? Some key words is when we say things like never and always in those fights, very often reflects, one, that we're going to a childlike place, but secondly, that it's something in the past. Sometimes people even are new relationships and the person says always and never, even though maybe this type of issue came up once or twice. But clearly we can see that their always or never isn't about just the individual they're talking to. It's something from their past that is being triggered and that's what's important to look at. So both partners have to look at themselves and reflect on their own past to see what do they bring to this argument or disagreement that might be contributing to what's going on, especially, again, if things get more heated than might be expected based on what was the, the cause or what seems to be the cause of the fight or argument. And then, of course, another important layer in these dynamics that we're looking at is the interaction between the two partners and also their own history and past. So, of course, I was talking about looking at your past in your childhood and previous relationships that you might be bringing into the current fight, but also the history you have with your partner can be a big cause of that. And importantly, if there is some underlying tension in the relationship, this is likely going to come out whenever there's an argument. And this is why I always talk about how important it is for couples to express things that they're upset about, hurt about, if they're feeling resentful, if they feel like they're giving more than they're getting, if they feel that uh, their partner's hurting them in some way or not helping them in some way, or whatever it might be. This is why it's so important to, to talk about these things, because those feelings don't go away. We might think, well, I didn't talk about it and it's done now, but almost always it stays with us. And that's why when we sometimes fight over something as trivial as the garbage or something very minor, 
it blows up because there's all this unresolved feelings, which is kind of like some gasoline that is just waiting for a spark to ignite it and start a fire. And that's why we can sometimes get so angry over something so small because we're not actually just angry about that small thing. We're angry about so many things from the past, so many things that are going on. So the couple has to take a look at that too. And this, of course, you can reflect on it and that's good, but even more important is to make this a collaborative process to talk about what's what happened here, what what's going on. You got so mad about this. Do you feel like I don't help you in this way or I'm hurting you in this way in general? Because sometimes maybe now we're talking about the trash, but before it was some really big thing that I felt that you did not support me or you were not there for me. And we can look at that. Is there somewhere else where this issue or this theme is coming up? Because that's important for us to look at. So whether we're talking about parents talking with their kids or husbands and wives uh, having a fight, we always want to look at the underneath, the deeper. If we stay too caught on exactly the what's happening on the surface, we're almost always going to miss this more significant issues that are underneath. So first we want to look at ourselves and what about this fight might be triggering something in us, in our past relationships, in our past experiences, for our insecurities, our sensitivities. We want to look at our partner and what he or she might also be bringing to this fight that might not be about us and about the relationship. And then we definitely want to look at the relationship and what's going on. What are the themes that keep coming up in our relationship? What might this fight represent for us? What might be happening here? And we don't want to ignore any of those things. And we don't want to just think that the fight was just what it was about, because most of the time there's a lot deeper um, issues that are bringing that are being brought up and we want to look at. So some of these keep in mind when you do have an argument, let yourself cool down, but then really start to look at it a little more deeply to see what might be going on there. All right, we're at our first commercial break, but again, I want to mention that cruise is March 9th through 12th, which is the first one I'll be doing. And I'm doing it with commercial travel. And if you're interested in contacting them, I can give you their numbers, which are 800-800-1991 and 818-883-8100. All right, the studio number again is 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tlaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, thank you so much for your program and every, uh, you know, every information that you share. I have a quick question. As a friend and family, if we found out that two couples with the kids, they cheat on each other, like mm-hmm. uh, we found out that, you know, friend of friend of mine, uh, mom, you know, just find out about his dad that he's cheating on her, and you know, she said he cannot come home. And you know, my daughter called me and she told me, "Mom, my friend is crying because, you know." Anyway, mom found out the dad is cheating, and uh, you know, the teenager girl she's crying that my mom kicked out my dad out of the house. How we can do help as a friend? Mm-hmm. Well, that that's a tough situation. I mean the first and foremost, it's just a very sad situation. It's like a bomb has gone off in that family. 
And so we have to be ready that there's going to be a lot of casualties, a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, anger, uh, possibly the end of the marriage and the breaking up of the family. So it's a big deal. You know, we have to accept that first and foremost, but also we have to accept that there isn't much we can do. Uh, you know, we can be supportive to a degree, but there's a lot of work that they they're going to have to do and figure out. You know, there's not much that you're you're responsible to do. Um, you know, they have a lot of work ahead of them. They can decide if they want to stay together or not. That's a first step. There's a book called After the Affair that I've talked about on the show before that can be helpful to both of them. Um, but there's some big decisions that have to be made. Now, are you concerned about your daughter in this as a friend of this family? Um, where, where, or are you more concerned about your personal role? Um, my, my personal role, actually, I'm just, I say hi and bye to that, you know, her mom, who just, you know, friend, like, you know, just, um, social friendship, not very close friendship, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I was thinking, how can I help them? Uh, you know, the Christmas time, you know, my daughter told me her friend called in the middle of the night and crying. My mom kicks my dad out of the house and. She told me that uh, she told me that my friend told him. Actually, this is a step that that this thing happened. Actually, mom married married twice, and it's the second marriage. And uh, the daughter girl, the daughter said, "Hey, if you love me, you need to come back home. You know, my friendship is gonna be over with you if you do not come. You know, it's just kind of very sad." Wait, your the daughter said that to whom? To your daughter or to the stepdad? But, you know, they're very close friends. Just... I'm confused. You know, the, your, 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 your daughter's friend told her stepdad you have to come home? Yes. Or our friendship is over? I don't know what friendship means. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, because, because this is your stepdad. And she said, don't, don't worry about my mom that to kick you out. You need to come home because of me. Because, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know my daughter is a very, very close friend to her, mm-hmm. and she called my daughter in the middle of the night that I was crying, I cannot you know, do anything. My mom kicked out of, kicked out my uh, stepdad out of the house because she noticed she was cheating the girl in California and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, how, how, can I, how can I help my daughter to help her friend? Well, you know, uh, your daughter is going to be a friend to her friend, but that's all she's supposed to be, and she's not going to fix the problem either. I no, would, definitely. right? But I would be aware of not having your daughter at that home too much at this time because there's a lot of chaos there. So if you want to have the girl over at your house, that might be a better idea than having your your daughter go there. How old is your daughter? Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, I I think I I would think because of all the chaos that's going to be happening over there. And maybe even the daughter wants to, to get away from it at times. You know, you can have her over rather than have your daughter over there. That would be one suggestion. And, you know, let your daughter know that she has to, as, as always, take care of herself too. Because if her friend is asking for too much of her, if this happens, or being uh, too much that she can't handle supporting her, she has to make sure she takes care of herself and doesn't overwhelm herself in that process too. So that's something important. You know, I, I talk about this when people, um, when I discuss suicide or any type of issue that we're not supposed to help someone all by ourselves. You know, we can't yeah. fix someone. So, you know, you can just tell her, just know that you're, 
your friend is going to be going through a very hard time. And we can understand that this is very difficult. Already she's had to deal with her parents' divorce, but then the stepfather comes in and now this, you know, huge bomb goes off. It's going to be very difficult. How long has the, uh, how long has this new marriage been going on? I don't know, but this is second marriage. Maybe I exactly don't know, but maybe it's 10 years. Okay. So yeah, so this man has been in her life a long time. Maybe, you know, the way you're describing her response that you have to come home, don't worry about what my mom says. She could be dealing with some abandonment issues or fear of abandonment and a fear of, you know, this marriage breaking up too. So we can understand this could be very hard for her. Um, and, and that's all it's going to be. And you can tell your daughter that, that it's going to be hard for your friend and you can be her friend and that that's it, but it's a sad situation. Yeah. I mean, uh, I was thinking how we can help them, you know, just send them to talk to them with a counseling or, I mean, uh, you know, when you're, you know, it's a bad time. Yeah, it's going to, you know, yeah, well, it's going to be, you know, it's never a good time to go through something like this. Maybe it's even worse now, but it's a horrible thing to happen no matter when it it comes out. But, you know, the way you're saying you're just high and by and you're not that close with them, you have to be aware of also not crossing a boundary and doing too much or trying to do too much, you know, send them to counseling. Because even when you say, when you say send them to counseling, what do you mean? The, The husband and wife? Yeah, that's why I wouldn't, I think that might be too much. And also, you know, in your assumption of sending them to counseling, I think it could be a good idea, but it sounds like you're assuming that the counseling will fix their relationship. And it could be that the wife says, I don't want to continue this relationship. And that's just because the daughter is involved and the daughter doesn't like it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say she should stay together if she doesn't want to. So, um, the whole thing of trying to work on the relationship after the affair in the book, as I mentioned, uh, after the affair, it talks about this. First, you have to even decide, do I want to to continue this marriage or relationship? Because for some people, they just know this is going to be too much for me to recover from. And if that's the case, then they should move on. And that that's that they're probably going to need counseling on their own anyway to deal with this trauma that they've gone through. Um, but the assumption I get from you is that, okay, let's have them go to counseling so they work things out. Yeah. Is that where you're coming from? Yes. Yeah. Would you, yeah, I would like to listen to you. Can I listen to the radio for the rest of the Sure. Okay, I just kind of listen to from the air. Sorry, I can't, you, you want to do what? Uh, I would like to continue listening to you by the air. Okay, but I, you know, I just want to. I mean, I want to make sure we're like you, you've asked everything you wanted to ask, and I, you know, get where you're coming from. But I want you to hear that your underlying assumption is that they should work things out. Yeah, well, I'll just try to see what we can suggest them to make everything better. You know? Right, and so that's and that's kind of the classic place that most of us come from. How do I just uh, remove pain? How do I remove what people are feeling? rather than acknowledging the pain and the situation that's there. You know, this is going to be sad and they maybe have to get divorced. That's going to be for them to decide. Um, but we can't remove the, the pain. This is a, a bomb went off. It's There's going to be lots of injuries and pains and traumatic uh, experiences that people are going to have. And it's, I'm very heartbroken for the 14-year-old who seems like she's going through a lot, and she will. And of course, uh, you know, for the whole family. So... Um, we have to just be aware of that place that you're coming from is to take it away and 
this is just going to be a painful time for all of them. Yeah. If I want to um, let her mom listen to this program, what suggestion do you, what suggestion do you have for her? Um, well, what, I would. What do you suggest? What do you suggest for the woman? Well, you know, she just you know, found her husband. They just yeah, that's you know, her. that's really hard. There, that book, you know, I mentioned it a few times now. There's a book called After the Affair that that talks about um, this, and I, I forgot the name of the author. I'm going to look it up right now as we speak. Um, that can be a good book to read. Hold on, give me just a second. Janice A. Spring. So the book is called After the Affair. Um, Esther Peril is another author, and she's written a lot about um, affairs. Her book, Mating in Captivity, talks about it. And then she has a new book, which I haven't read yet, which I think is called The State of Affairs. Um, so she can look at that. But, you know, if she just found out last night uh, she's her head's still kind of spinning, so she needs to to give herself some time to um, really process what's going on, which is going to be a, a long process itself to really deal with all of this. But she needs some time to to think about it, and then she really has to think about what do I want to do going forward? Do I think I can still have a a healthy and happy marriage with this person? Do I feel like I'll be able to trust them? Which is a big question. And if she does want to do that, it's going to take a lot of work to do that. Uh, and she has to make that choice on her own because that's the first big one. Do I want to, or do I think I can make this work or not? Um, that's the first big question she has to ask herself. But I would just be ready, you know, even if the way you describe your relationship with her, I would be aware of not crossing a boundary of saying you should hear this or let me give you my advice or go to therapy because that might be too much if you guys are so distant. And so again, I get this feeling from you that you have this uh, almost like a need to help people to take away their pain. And that's that's also what worries me about just your own experience or what you do. And so I want you to be mindful of that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Sure, thank you. Good luck to, to you. And with your daughter, just give her, you know, you can be supportive of her. Um, let her know, you know, she has to take care of herself. Because like I said, I get the feeling you might take on too much and maybe your daughter can feel that way too. So just be aware of that. Okay. Yeah. And what is your suggestion to the girls herself? The, the daughter? The program, um, I mean, you know, just like, again... You know, what she's going through is something very, very difficult. And also for her that I know she doesn't want the family to, to break up, it sounds like, based on her reaction. Um, and that's an understandable response. She wants everything to stay as it was. But unfortunately, a big change has taken place. You know, that's the problem. And, you know, it might not be up. She's not going to have control over it. And it's not her responsibility uh, to fix it. It definitely wasn't her uh, issue or problem or fault that things have broken up. So... Um, I would just let her know that she doesn't, you know, it's going to be painful. It's going to be tough, but, um, you know, she's going to have to just recognize it's out of her control. A lot of what's going on, which is difficult. And I hope they, she also gets to go to therapy because it seems like there's a lot of trauma there that she's going to have to deal with. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you so sure. much. Yes. Thank thanks you. for your call. Bye-bye. Thank you. So that was, you know, very big issue she brought up, um, in general dealing with affairs and that's, that's a tough tough issue and as i said first and foremost the individual has to decide what they want to do do they think they possibly can continue the marriage or not and if they don't then they already have their answer but if they do they have to be ready for a long and hard process where they're going to have to work with their partner 
to get over what's happened, to try to continue the relationship. And it's not for any of us to decide for someone else if they should continue the marriage or not. It's definitely a personal decision, as it always is, that the person has to look at themselves, their life, uh, how they feel, do they think that things can survive um, this trauma that's occurred, and go forward. Either way, I think therapy is going to be involved. Whether you want to work on the marriage, definitely 100%, you're going to need to do some really intense couples therapy together and be ready that it's not going to be easy. Um, and even if you choose to end the relationship, this is a relationship trauma and one that we want to make sure we deal with so that we can continue living our life, but also so that we don't bring this into our next relationship, which almost inevitably you will to a degree, but at least reducing how much this is going to affect you in future relationships, because this type of a trauma will affect how you trust, the way you're going to feel, your safety, uh, your fears of losing the relationship, maybe even uh, creating fears of abandonment in you, of starting new relationships and actually getting close because of a fear of getting hurt. So we have to be ready for that. It's a very uh, sad thing. Again, when a bomb goes off, it takes a long time to deal with the injuries and to try to put the pieces back together. But that's the process and the road ahead. And as I mentioned, the book After the Affair is a good tool in this process by Janice Spring that uh, I could recommend for anyone who's dealing with this issue or knows someone who is. You can give them that book as something that might give them some help. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. back let's go to our next caller radio hamra you're on the air uh good morning doctor hi how are you doing thank you very much for i'm doing well thank you for taking my, my call. pleasure and uh, uh the issue i want to talk to is it's, uh very much like uh the other side of the, your last caller mm-hmm. that uh i'm uh, uh about a year ago, I uh, uh, cheated on my fiance, mm-hmm. and it was uh, just at one time. And uh, we, we and uh, she found out, and and it was all uh, 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 we, we pretty much talked about it. We did counseling. We had about ten or twelve hours of counseling. I had some separate, she had separate, we went there together. Uh, one of the questions, uh, well, well, one of the statements I made to the counselor was that if it was the other way around, and she would have cheated on me, I would never have taken her back mm-hmm. because I uh, know I could have not lived like that no matter how uh, trustworthy and how uh, the right 
things would have done by her, but still I would always have that on, this on mind. And I was saying that uh, she's so greater and with much more heart than I could have been. Mm-hmm. Now, after about a year that uh, uh, I pretty much have done everything that uh, I'm supposed to do, you know, she has access to everything she has uh, uh, access uh, on the phone to know where I am and uh, uh, anytime she calls or uh, she wants to do a face and things like that uh, uh, and for it it's very very painful uh, anytime that uh, she's asking uh, something which I've already told her and I can see she's trying to do the reassurance of uh, uh, to make sure I am what I said or uh, I am where uh, I'm supposed to be but still it is there so my question for you is I would call it post makeup uh, syndrome mm-hmm. how long would this go because uh, well, it's hard to it's say. Very, very hard mm-hmm. to uh, see how she is because one time she said, oh, because do you know what you did? And I know your father says that if something happens in the past. Uh, it must uh, be gone unless it still continues. Is this the case? It still continues or... Uh, how do I deal with that? Well, you know, you know, because something happened in the past doesn't mean we can necessarily move on from it. So I understand what you're saying. Um, and actually, this does add to what I was talking about before in the sense that I was saying the person has to decide, do I want to continue or not? And just because they make that decision that they do want to continue doesn't mean that the relationship can survive what happened. It's possible that although both people want to make it work, the affair was too much of a blow to the relationship, made it too uh, damaged that maybe you can't recover, even though you both might try. Now, I'm not saying you guys are there yet, but we have to be aware and accept that possibility that even if both people want to make it work, they go to therapy, sometimes it's you know not salvageable. Just like someone could get hurt or get sick, we take them to the hospital and do all the best treatments, they might not survive. So it could be that the relationship was damaged too much, and we have to accept that possibility uh, that that happened. Now, I know you guys went to, you said like 12 sessions of therapy, and that's good, but maybe that's not enough. 12 sessions is, is a start, but maybe you guys need some more. And I would say you can you know continue that. Um, but it seems like you're trying to do what you can in being as transparent as possible, but she's not able to trust you at least yet, or still has some concerns, concerns about that. Did you guys get married or you're still engaged? No, we we didn't get married. Okay. Um, okay. And what, what's your, where do you feel about, what do you feel about the relationship? Do you feel like it's able to continue as it is, or you're not able, you're not able to tolerate what things are, what things are happening or how things are happening? The thing is that I love her, and she's the most wonderful. Watch, be, uh, and, uh, be be aware of the words you're using, please. We're on the air.
I, I couldn't have done it even this far mm-hmm. if it was the other way around. Yeah. But uh, I've, I've, I've tried, uh, but I see it's uh, uh, coming up, which uh, um, uh, I, I know I did wrong, but uh, still it's the, the shadow of that uh, wrongdoing mm-hmm. still is uh, uh, there. Yeah. And, uh, um, and it's very painful. I, even though that I wouldn't mention it, you know, I uh, openly uh, welcome whatever assurance you want. But sometimes uh, the way, like uh, the night before I said what I'm going to do uh, day after, then on the day after she comes, oh, okay, what are you going to do today? Um, it's agitating and it's uh, mm-hmm. uh, I I try to uh, bring up that okay, this is what you did, and uh, uh, I, I try to talk myself into to understand where she's coming from. Mm-hmm. But it's very painful. I'm I mean, sure. It's, uh, uh, I don't know the, the book you said. What was it? The, uh, the, the spring. Yeah, it's called af- After the Affair. Oh, After the Affair. Well, I thought it was After the Break. Oh. No, yeah, After the Affair. So this is supposed to be for um, either person who's gone through the affair process, but then if they want to work on things. The first part of it talks about you have to first decide if you want to continue, but then if you do, it goes through lots of different uh, issues that are important for the couple to look at. And also it talks about going to therapy, but... Lots of things to look at. So I'd recommend that book if you guys haven't read it already to, to read that book. Now, an important thing when trying to recover from an affair is to try to understand why it took place in the in the first place. Do you think you have an understanding of why, you know, why you cheated or what happened? Uh, this is what it came up uh, during uh, the therapy and uh, I was saying because uh, I was under, uh, I mean, what I was bringing up, then it was showing up. Uh, the therapist was saying, no, you are not, uh, uh, you, you are blaming her on that. So that was the issue. Pretty much it stopped there. Hmm. Uh, because to me, where I saw it was not only uh, that, I was a jerk, and I didn't do something proper. But also the situation which uh, uh, led us to go there, and then. But uh, I had to stop that. Maybe that's the issue. Still, uh, I think that somehow she had uh, something to do uh, to make the situation uh, cloudy. I don't know if that's the excuse I'm bringing. Or well, the... this is, you know, I mean, it's it's obviously complicated. Now, in order to, to work on the relationship after the affair, we have to try to understand what led to the affair. Now, when I say that, I want to make it very clear that I'm not justifying that you're having an affair that or making it seem like you had no other choice. Because to me, um, there is always another choice. Now, we try to understand and not to justify but in order to justify or to understand how to move forward, if we can repair what was going on, maybe we can move forward in a better way. Maybe 
the partner can feel that they can trust the other person again, again, it's going to be very difficult. But you do need to take a look at what happened, as painful as that may be. But you have to make sure that when you have those kinds of conversations, you don't at all make it seem like you're blaming your partner that she's the reason why you cheated or that it was her fault that you cheated. Because in the end, you made that decision and you took that action. You could have approached it another way. Um, and so that's, you know, sometimes even I have an issue with some of the authors that write about affairs that they make it seem almost like it was okay for the person to do what they did. You know, you, you made a mistake, you made a bad action. So I don't want to sit here and just judge you and, and make you seem like a bad guy because I'm not, I don't think it's that black and white, but the action you made to me was a mistake and definitely a wrong thing to do that was hurtful. And I would never say you had no other choice, but to do what you did. Um, and that's why actually I'm very big on, uh, you know, I even want to maybe write something about before the affair kind of related to this book after the affair, because I think a lot of times people, uh, they get to a place where they know they can make a different decision, but they don't, or rather than recognizing their attraction to someone else as an indication of many things, whether it's, um, a problem in the relationship, problems with themselves, a host of other things, fears of intimacy, whatever else it might be, we we get too fixated on the attraction as meaning something, where really it could be telling us something else. So when we start to feel that attraction towards another person, and by attraction, I don't mean just finding someone attractive, because that's always going to be there, but approaching someone and creating a relationship and finding ourselves thinking about someone and whatever else it might be, we want to we take a look at what might be going on at a deeper level and not take that action, but recognize that we can try to work on the relationship. So that being said, it is going to be important for you and your partner to talk about what happened again, with you being aware that you're not blaming her for the action that you took, that you take responsibility for that. Okay. And, uh, I just, uh, have to be, uh, to carry that, uh, notion. She's, uh, uh, insecure or she's uh, uh, repeating something which uh, clearly shows of uh, uh, mistrust? Well, I mean, I'm not saying you have to. Maybe, like I said, even you might decide. I know, you know, there's a feeling that maybe she's the one that if she says she can't handle it, think you guys should break up. But if you feel like, you know, this relationship is not healthy and it's not working for you, you might realize that the affair was too much and that you can't handle it. So it, it, I'm not saying you have to, that that's, you always have a decision to be in this relationship or not. Um, and no, if she's mad at you every day about the affair for the rest of your guys' life, it's not going to work. That is going to be a problem. Now, but going back to my question, do you feel like you understand why you cheated? Uh, I do, I do. But uh, I, I mean, I, I know that uh, it's, it was a uh, just a uh, tri- the situation of uh, having several uh, things were coming up. Uh, uh, some hardship in the family came up, which uh, took uh, uh, her away from paying attention to me, and you know things like that. And uh, I was uh, feeling insecure that if uh, we are uh, going have uh, the same strong relationship as we had before, so I had a kind of doubt about uh, our relationship. Mm-hmm. But still, I understand that it, it, it doesn't matter. It's 
uh, but as long as you are staying in a relationship, you have to keep uh, uh, the trust and your responsibility uh, towards each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but still, I can see that under all these, there is some uh, part uh, which I think it was uh, the mod down there, something was created uh, by her. The what was created? Uh, the mod, the, uh, that uh, a disturbance uh, was created. I think it, it was uh, coming from her, even if she was not doing it on purpose. But uh, yeah, and to get away because of uh, other uh, family matters, which it wasn't from me or it wasn't from her. It just pulled into the. Uh, it was a like an illness and a death in the family, mm-hmm. which caused all that. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, the distance. It seems so. It did. Does seem like you felt distance from her, and that you know created some doubt and some feelings. So again, we're trying to understand what happened. Um, as I mentioned before, to me, twelve sessions after an affair is probably not going to be enough. So I think you guys need to do more therapy. If I would say do that before. You call it quits because it seems like the way things are going, you guys are trying to survive the affair, but you're still in the survival mode a year later. And it might be there for a while, but I think you need more treatment to help you guys get to a better place. Or again, maybe decide that this relationship can't continue. But I think you guys are kind of in this middle ground, which is not good for either of you. So I would definitely suggest going back into therapy and really digging deeper, being ready that as I'm sure you experienced, the therapy was very uncomfortable because we're dealing with something that's hard to talk about. It doesn't feel good. There's going to be a lot of incredibly painful, intense emotions that are going to be coming up. Um, there's a lot of doubt. So there's, there's just, it's just a lot of pain. It's very difficult to deal with. So I would hope you guys go back in to therapy and um, take a hard look at what you have and make a decision before you know going forward because where you're at is it seems like you're still very stuck now i don't want to blame the stuckness just on her because i think from your side it seems like it's just her we have to recognize how difficult it is just as you mentioned yourself you don't think you would be able to stay with someone after this so we have to recognize that but just staying together is not enough you guys will have to be able to have a good relationship again and if that's not possible then the best decision for both of you i think would be to to stop the relationship but I would get back into therapy. You, 12 to me, 12 sessions was not enough, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. Best I appreciate the opinion, and thank you very much. I appreciate your opinion. honesty for calling in and, and sharing that. Wish you guys the best. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Take care. Happy Bye-bye. New Year happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Going into our next commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fatty Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back, studio number 3104410555. In the last call and the call before, the issue of affairs came up. Um, and also in the last one, this idea of 
seeking for forgiveness or and how hard that can be but it, it made me think to talk again about this important issue of apologizing of saying sorry which uh, for many of us can be a very difficult thing to do at all to acknowledge wrongdoing and to say sorry but then also doing it correctly just saying the words i'm sorry is not necessarily enough or doesn't mean we're doing a genuine apology now to begin with we know how powerful apologies are when someone is hurt uh, a lot of times actually they think what's going to make them feel the best is to get revenge and that's a very reactionary response which most people have it's a very common one um, but what we see is that revenge usually doesn't make people feel happy at the end what what leads to genuine healing in almost all cases is to get an apology to get acknowledgement from the person who hurt us that they are sorry for what they did I've used this example before, but if you're ever driving and here in LA, uh, you get there's a lot of traffic and you might get cut off from time to time. But if you get cut off, it's very common to have an initial reaction of anger. Um, but if the person just drives off, you, you don't feel very good. You might get more angry, especially if they somehow give you a bad gesture, as can happen even when someone cuts you off themselves. They might still get upset if you honk at them. But even uh, the other end, if they apologize in some way, you know, put their hand up or somehow acknowledge, you know what, that was kind of close, or I'm sorry I cut you off, which is hard to do because, again, you're you're driving and it's not a lot of ways to communicate. But even that small gesture of saying, I realize I cut you off, very often quickly leads to a reduction of how you're feeling. That's definitely been my experience. Just the response makes you, okay, they kind of saw that they kind of did me wrong there, or they cut me off, or that was too close, and that already makes me feel better. So the acknowledgement and the apology goes a far way in healing us. Now, of course, I'm just talking about something minor like getting cut off on the freeway, but in more serious infractions, this is even more important. And very often in therapy, people come in and they're, they're sharing past pains, hurts that they have. And unfortunately, what's very sad is for many reasons they kind of learned that they're never going to get that apology from the person that they very rightly deserve one from, whether it's a parent or a past partner or someone in their life who has hurt them very, very wrongly, has hurt them badly, they might not get that. And the process of forgiveness without an apology is very difficult. It's a lot harder than when we get that acknowledgement and apology from the person who hurt us. It's still possible. It's just harder. Um, so sometimes people have a family member or the person that hurt them just refuses to accept what happened or is just not the type of person to ever apologize. Or it can be even more clear cut when that person has died, but you're not going to get an actual apology from them. You'll never hear them acknowledge what they did and say sorry to you. Um, and that can be very tough, of course. Again, it's possible, but it's harder to forgive someone when we don't have that apology from them and that acknowledgement. So we want to keep that in mind, that especially with our loved ones, we want to give them that gift of an apology, to tell them, I'm sorry for how we have hurt them, because that's going to go a long way in healing the pains we've caused them, and also in healing and helping make a stronger and healthier relationship between you and that individual. So we should never forget the power of those words, I'm sorry, and the power of a genuine apology. Uh, all of us have hurt people, whether it was intentionally or unintentionally. We've hurt people around us, and the best thing we can do is to genuinely apologize for how we've hurt our loved ones. Uh, I especially make this case with parents to recognize that, because no matter how 
a good of a job you do as a parent, no matter how hard you try to parent, uh, inevitably you've hurt your child. And to acknowledge that you've hurt them can be a really huge step in healing their pains and also in creating a closer relationship between you and your child. But looking at a genuine apology, it's important to keep a few things in mind. A very big one is to recognize that when we're saying, I'm sorry to someone, that the intention should be about acknowledging our wrong, wrongdoing and making them feel better or making it about them. But unfortunately, what many people do when they're saying, I'm sorry, it's not about genuinely apologizing. It's about absolving themselves of guilt, of being okay in the other person's eyes. So we make it about us, not about them. And so what this sounds like is one that says, I'm really sorry, okay? Like, we're okay? I'm sorry, okay? That kind of feeling of, I just want you to tell me I'm okay, or I didn't do anything wrong or bad, or you're no longer mad at me, or I'm not guilty anymore of any kind of crime or doing something wrong. And this is very unfortunate because although we think we're apologizing and we're doing something for that other person, we're doing it just for ourselves. And this can actually leave the person feeling more hurt than if you said nothing at all. And very often you'll see fights created in this way because the person says, I'm sorry, and it's about them. And the person doesn't feel very good. And then the person says, well, I even apologize. How are you upset still? Or what's your problem? And they blame the person for being upset. And it leads to a fight. So a genuine apology is about the other person. And by the about the other person, I mean you're letting them know you're upset that you hurt them, you feel bad that you hurt them, and make it about them. So make sure your intention in apologizing isn't just to get rid of your own guilt. That's not a genuine apology to the other person. That's just us trying to take care of ourselves and to help ourselves feel better. So a genuine apology is about the person you're apologizing to, not you. Now, you also want to be careful that when you start your apology, you don't add words like but or other words that are justifying what you did or somehow blaming the person. So sometimes someone will say, I'm sorry you I called you that name, but you were being so unreasonable or you were being crazy. So I said that word. So basically, it's not really an apology. You're just explaining what you did. Now, an explanation can be important later on down the line to help the person understand where you are coming from. But initially with your apology, you want to make sure it's just about your wrongdoing, not what the person did. And I hear this a lot. The person says, I apologize, but every time they apologize, they make it very clear that they did something wrong because of the other person. So it was their fault. They were forced to do it or they were, they were the cause of it. That's not a real apology. Now, we also want to make sure when we do an apology, we don't go too far which again, this comes from the mindset of trying to absolve ourselves from guilt. Sometimes people even start to hurt themselves thinking that's going to make the other person feel better. Even in Persian cultures, literally hitting themselves or hurting themselves as a way of somehow saying sorry when that's not going to make the other person feel better. So make sure that you don't get too overly dramatic in your apology. Or if you start crying, which is something that many people do to, again, take away the guilt and make themselves the victim. So I hurt you, but then now I'm crying about hurting you and how it's in a way hurting me more than you're hurt. So again, I'm not caring about your feelings. So we have to make sure we don't overdo the apology and somehow, again, make it about ourselves. If we get too emotional in how we express it, the person, again, is likely to start taking care of our feelings and won't get to actually experience this process of an apology. What's also very, very important in apologies to acknowledge your wrongdoing. So this is what I did wrong, and I can understand how that hurts you. That's also very important. 
that what I did, I can understand the hurt it caused. We don't want to make it seem like I did something and I guess you're sensitive about this so it didn't feel good to you or I guess that when I did that it didn't make you feel good. I don't really get it, but whatever. Because that doesn't show that you're really validating and understanding their feelings. I understand that what I did hurt your feelings and that didn't feel good to me and that's why I'm sorry. And of course, what's also very, very important is that you make it clear that you don't want to hurt them in that same way again. Um, we've all probably been in some kind of relationship or some kind of interaction with someone who keeps hurting us the same way and their apology feels very empty to us because again part of an apology includes i don't want to hurt you again in this way or it should include that part but if they do it again the next day we don't really genuinely feel like they're that sorry about what they did because they're still doing it, it doesn't feel like a genuine apology so you can express that to the person that i understand that when i I did this, it hurt you, and I want you to know I'm making every effort to not do that again, and you can know that. Or if I said that thing to you, I know that that was really not okay, and I'm never going to use that word when I talk to you again, because that was not all right, and I feel bad about that, and I'm very sorry. So we want to make sure we show the, the corrective action or the steps we're taking to make sure we don't hurt that person in that same way again, that we never want them to feel that way, and we won't hurt them in that way. This is really, really important. And lastly, what's also very important is that we acknowledge to whoever we're talking to that when we apologize to them, that we're not expecting instant forgiveness, that we recognize that we hurt them and that because we hurt them, it can take time for this hurt and this pain to heal. And this goes back to that original idea I brought up that we have to make sure the apology isn't about just taking away our guilt. Because sometimes we're apologizing just to get forgiveness, not because we genuinely are sorry and want to apologize, but we want that word of I forgive you or that feeling that I'm okay. So a genuine apology acknowledges that how we've hurt the individual can take time to heal. Uh, especially in these previous segments, we were talking about affairs, of course, that, that can take time or in some ways that, that wound is never going to fully heal and we have to accept that and acknowledge that. So when we're apologizing, we have to make sure we give the other person in the space and even you can tell them that you know I'm, I'm saying i'm sorry and um i want you to know that i understand that this could take time to heal i know how i hurt you doesn't feel good and i want you to know that i'm willing to wait uh, and be here waiting for your forgiveness i'll be patient with you with that because i care and i know i hurt you and also if you want to talk more about this issue because i know everything i said might not be enough I want you to know that we can talk about it some more. So we want to make sure we don't put a pressure on them to forgive us instantly or to tell us it's okay. We Again, that's why we have to make sure our intention is clear. My intention isn't just to get forgiveness from you. My intention isn't to take away my guilty feeling. My intention is to apologize to you because I recognize that I hurt you in some way. That's where I'm coming from. And don't apologize until you're at that place. Uh, very often when we rush the apology or again we we're feeling so bad we want to apologize, it might be more about us than about them. So be aware of that. Make sure that when you make your apology, you're in a good place, in the right place, to make it about their feelings, about where they're coming from, and acknowledging your wrongdoing and hurting them. Um, and if you're able to do that, you'll actually benefit all the relationships that you have. When you apologize and acknowledge your wrongdoing, people feel a lot better about you and their relationship. They feel like, you know what, I can trust them because if they do something wrong, they'll let me know. It's very difficult to be in any kind of relationship with someone who doesn't acknowledge wrongdoing, who doesn't want to acknowledge that they did something wrong. 
So, and another element I'll add to this is sometimes people, especially husbands and wives, will have this idea of, I don't want to say I'm sorry first, because that makes me seem weaker, or that makes me seem like I'm the wrong one. But if people have a disagreement, and I hear one of them apologize first, that doesn't tell me that that person was more wrong or responsible for the fight. That tells me that person was willing to acknowledge their side of things. In, in any kind of fight, almost always it's going to be two people that were involved or two people that played a part. It's not really one person's fault completely. So whoever is actually first to acknowledge and genuinely acknowledge their side of things is actually, to me, often the stronger or bigger person. And it's good to be that person. And we don't have to think that if I'm acknowledging wrongdoing, that I'm responsible for the whole fight. You're just acknowledging wrongdoing for your side of the interaction or what happened with you. So being the first to extend that olive branch of peace by apologizing can be very important in helping to resolve lots of issues, but especially pains that we've caused to those around us. So I know it's the holiday season and families are getting together uh, more often with time off and things like that. It could be a very good time to think about how you might have hurt or wronged loved ones in your life and to extend a genuine apology to them, to acknowledge how you've hurt them, that you care about them, that you don't want to hurt them again, and that you are here to work with them if they want you to, in helping to forgive what has happened so that you can make your relationship move on from the past to become stronger and move forward in a healthy way. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back again studio number 3104410555 it's the holiday season and a big part of the holidays um, especially here in the united states is giving gifts now some people might complain about the commercializing of the holidays and christmas and i think there's definitely some truth to that but i did want to use this excuse as a good time to talk about giving gifts which um, is an important part or can be an important part of relationships uh, especially if your partner or yourself has the love language of gifts, which is one of the five love languages. For some people, the way they feel loved is by receiving gifts, or one of the ways they re they feel loved. Now, I want to make it clear when we talk about the love language of receiving gifts, it doesn't mean um, it has to be name, brand, or very expensive things. Those things can be part of it, but more it's about receiving gifts that are thoughtful and meaningful and make the person feel like they were thinking of them. So that's more what we're talking about. Not that it has to necessarily be a very expensive thing. Um, now, there's not a lot of people that don't like getting gifts. It feels good. If you really don't like getting gifts, it could be something involved with um, feeling like maybe you don't deserve them or when you receive a gift, feeling like you owe the other person and not liking that feeling. But in general, most people like it. But for some people, it can be uh, a really, really good feeling, or again, the way they're going to feel loved. Now, when it comes to giving gifts, people can feel a lot of pressure. Uh, what do I get my partner or someone that I love? How do I know what to get them and, and to get them something they're going to like? And it, there can be some pressure there. Um, again, if your partner has this love language, you want to make sure it's something you keep in mind. 
And also the pressure we feel, for example, when it's Christmas or uh, some other holiday or birthdays or Valentine's Day to get a gift is something that people can get angry about. But my hope would be for anyone in a relationship or close to anyone that you don't just give gifts on those specific moments that people can and actually would be really appreciate getting gifts from you at any time. And if you truly love your partner, get them a gift whenever the time may be. I always tell uh, men who complain about Valentine's Day and they say, oh, it's too expensive and it's like this, you know, commercialized holiday and why do I have to show my love on that day? That fine, you don't have to celebrate Valentine's Day on Valentine's Day as long as you give your partner 10 Valentine's Days throughout the years where you are very romantic and give them gifts just for the heck of it to show your love towards them. So gifts don't have to come just at a specific time. Sometimes they're even more meaningful if it's just because you were thinking about the person and wanted to get them something. So that can be okay and actually very good. Now, we want to pay attention to what your partner likes. So a gift obviously is for them and you want to make sure it's something they like. So one good thing to do is to pay attention to things they notice when you're out. So if you're shopping with them and you see them look at something for a long time or say, oh, that's so nice, take note of that. And actually, even you can write those things down. Write down, this was the thing. And especially now with smartphones, you can even take a quick picture of whatever it is and maybe you come back and get it at some other time. So pay attention to what it is your partner shows interests in because they're giving you clues all the time. If you don't know at all what your partner likes, that probably tells me you're not that close with your partner and don't know them very well. You should know some things that are interesting for them that they have interest in and take note of those things because those are the things that they're going to appreciate as a gift. Um, also notice the things they get for other people. Sometimes, of course, they're going to get things specific to that individual, but they also will sometimes get things for people that they themselves would like to receive. So pay attention to that too. Are there certain things they get for a lot of people? That could be something that your partner themselves likes. Um, but most importantly for me is the thought that goes into the gift. Uh, making a gift that the person would really enjoy that comes from the heart. If you make it with your hands, most people will actually really appreciate that. And even when it comes to the card, make sure you put your writing in it. You know, don't just send a text or email. Make sure you use handwriting so it feels like there's that personal touch. Because generally what your partner is going to feel good about in the gift is some way where they feel that it makes them think of you and makes them right remember that you were thinking of them. So that can be an important thing to keep in mind when it comes to giving gifts. Um, you know, that you make it a very personal thing, something that comes from the heart. But I do want to go to some more callers. So let's bring another caller on the air. Radio Hamra. You're on the air. Hi, is it Dr. Fari? Yes, Dr. Fari Delacroix on the air with you. What is Hi. your call about? Uh, thank you. My, uh, my question is, I want to know what makes people so controlling. What pe like, makes people so controlling? Right. Okay. What did they go through the, in their life? They want to control everything so much. Yeah. Are you thinking of someone in particular when you ask that? Yeah, I'm controlling. Uh, I'm thinking of myself and the all Iranian mother. Okay. Um, yeah, so you're feeling you, that you're controlling yourself. So you do you have I your... I didn't know I was. Okay. Uh, I, I thought that was only way that it was. You know what I mean? I didn't know any other way. Mm -hmm. well, so, and then yeah. as 
more I did go through life, I realized that what I was doing was controlling. Mm-hmm. Well, so to begin with, I mean, you you know, you asked me about the why, but you started off some of the why, which is very often it's what a person was exposed to themselves. So right. if they had controlling parents, or as you're saying, a controlling mom, they probably learned one through modeling that this is how you mother, as you're saying, you thought this is how you're supposed to be. So they, they really didn't know any other way oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also it's a way they were taught that this is when you love someone, this is how you show them love by controlling them and trying to control everything about them. Now, underneath a lot of controlling behaviors is going to be anxiety. So we worry about things or we have a fear about how something's going to happen, so we try to control it. Um, and this is why even with OCD, they have rituals and they have things to try to get control over things because of the anxiety. They're trying to have some kind of control. Or superstitions are also a way of trying to get control of things that are out of our hands. Oh, something happened and we don't know, okay, if we burn this thing or if you knock on wood or if you do this ritual, it's going to take away the bad thing that's out of our control. And part of life or part of being able to live in this world is accepting that there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of things are out of your control. There's always going to be things that you can't control and very important things at times are out of your control, but we have to accept that. Uh, And as Stephen Covey talks about in The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, we want to be aware of making sure we try to control the things that we can and the things that aren't, we try our best not to really focus on them or think much about them because we can't do anything about them. So coming back to this idea of being a controlling parent, we, we often will find that the parent has a lot of anxiety about their children and what's going to happen to them. And so you try to control everything in an attempt in your mind to protect them from anything bad happening. So I'm worried about who my kids hang out with so i'm going to find out everything about them and and snoop and i'm going to check their phone to make sure i know what's happening or tell them they can or can't hang out with this person or that person Um, it's out of anxiety that we want to control the situation and sometimes it can also be coming from a related place of lack of trust or even paranoia that we assume people out there are bad or are going to do bad things so i have to protect everyone or protect myself and the loved ones in my life from being hurt by that person. I can't let them get hurt by people. Um, So genuinely comes from this place of anxiety of not feeling that the world is a safe place, that the world is a comfortable place, that people are trustworthy. And also, unfortunately, this feeling that we don't trust our own children to make the right choices. I have to control you because if I don't, you're going to do stupid things and get hurt or not be successful or be unhappy or be unpopular or whatever else the thinking is, but we don't actually have full confidence in our children to make the choices they have to make and also recognize that sometimes they're going to make the wrong choices and that's okay. They have to make mistakes and fail and fall and have heartbreaks and all sorts of other things to actually grow. So another problem with controlling parenting is that we don't actually allow our children to become strong, independent, and to live for themselves. And that's something that hurts them for the rest of their life. Um, so those are just some thoughts that came to my mind. Do you, do you see any of that in yourself, the anxiety? Right. Two things, two questions. Sure. Came. One of them is that you said they are modeling the very controlling parents. Can also the person be totally neglected in her life become a controlling? Mm-hmm. That's a good, you know, that's a good point. So it's not just modeling. I think 
Um, sometimes it could be a reaction. If we didn't get enough from our parents in any type of way, sometimes we react by becoming the opposite. So sometimes a parent who's, who, um, uh, as a kid, had parents who are so strict, when they have their own kids, they actually become very uh, uh, soft or too soft about rules and boundaries because they're trying to react from what they had. So, so you bring up a good point. It could also be uh, someone who lived a life that was very out of control and chaotic they're going to try to take control of everything. So if their parents were not around enough and maybe not giving them any kind of structure and support, their reaction might be in really all aspects of their lives, but especially as parents to become too controlling, to try to do too much to make up for what they didn't get in their own childhood. And this is why it's so important, as I always say, for parents to really understand their own childhood and their own issues. Because whether they know it or not, consciously or unconsciously, they're going to somehow put that onto their own kids. So we always have to be aware of how our past is going to affect us in our present and in our relationships. And also my other question is, you mentioned something like you don't trust your children that they can make a correct um, choice. Mm-hmm. But can't that also be, if you look at it a different way, like if the parent herself is uh, in punish for making for any wrongdoing in the life mm-hmm. so that person is really afraid of you know it seems like a, you've been so much punished that you think you have to make everything right and you're this acting that in your children's life is it possible it, it is sure that that could be possible too that you're trying to uh, you're, you know, because it, it does come from that mindset, you know, I was saying about not trusting them, but also this fear of mistakes or fear of what happens if you if you aren't successful in some way. So, so you're right. You might um, be so afraid of your child making a mistake that you are, don't want to let that happen to them because you're afraid of how they get punished by it. But again, the overall mindset, it doesn't come from this healthy place that part of life is making mistakes, that you're going to fall, you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And that all those things are okay, but there's too much of a feeling that you have to control every outcome because there can never be a negative outcome. So, so you're right. It could come from a lot of different places, and that's why rarely does any one type of behavior come from just one place. So I would never say controlling mothers, it's only from this type of uh, childhood that they're going to be controlling mothers. It can come from a lot of place, places, but we want to recognize what mindsets we might ourselves hold that contribute to the controlling. And maybe for you, it's this feeling that, you know, when you got, when you did something wrong, you got punished so severely when you did something wrong, even small, that you don't want to let that happen to your kid. But in a way, what you're doing is you're still punishing your kid for ever making a mistake by trying to control them. It's a different type of punishment, but you're still hurting them by saying, I'm never going to let you do something wrong or make your own decisions because I have to make it for you. So the mindset that I'd like for any parent to have is, you know, I want to support my kid. I want to encourage them to do good things, but I want to give them the responsibility to make their choices. And I understand that sometimes they're going to get it wrong and that's okay. Sometimes they're going to ruin a friendship by something they do. And it's not my job to come solve it and talk to the kid's mom and, you know, the kid and fix my kid's problem, I have to let them deal with it. Or they're going to not do their assignment and get a bad grade, and that's okay. I don't have to stay up till four in the morning and finish the assignment for them and then turn it in because my kid can't get a bad grade. I want my kid to face reality. And sometimes reality can be painful and and to learn how to interact with the world in a healthy way. 
You know, Dr. Farid, um, very first time in the United States I heard that they, in one of the classes that the people have right to be wrong. Hmm. And that was a new beginning for me. I never ever knew that, or I never heard that, or never learned that. Yeah. Um, the way that the, our culture and the whole thing, whole, whole system is, if you do something wrong and you are caught, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there is no way out of it. You have to be punished. Yeah. I mean, if a person does one million wrong thing and never be caught, that's okay. But uh, either at the school or at or anywhere, I don't remember any time I have done something wrong. Even though I honestly told them that I did it, there is no way out of the punishment. Mm-hmm. And that alone, that's why I never knew what the meaning of the grace when I came here. I said, what, what is it? Then I realized. Hmm. So thank you very much for no, explaining thank you. that. No, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your, what you said. You know, I really like that quote, you have the right to be wrong. I think that's that's a very a good thing to keep in mind and I think important for all of us to remember for ourselves, but also for our kids. They have the right to be wrong too. And yeah, yeah it seems like that I fear... I know even that. I mean, I was a grown-up person here, and when I heard that, it was a new beginning for me. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's a really important point but especially as parents to remember that our kids are gonna they actually have to to have challenges and and have some you know wrong experiences if you want to call that that that's part of healthy development and to keep them from experiencing those things actually hurts them in the long long run but thank you for your call okay may i add one more thing or you don't have to? no go ahead sure go ahead yeah well i was thinking about that and that's why we are pretending so much and we are trying to make everything look perfect from outside but my last question from you, if you can help us, is there any way to get over that or at least make it a little bit less than what it is? Well, I mean, of course, the the easy answer I can give you fir- firstly is to is therapy because you're dealing with a lot of things from your past. But, you right. know, it's that recognition that... Uh, you know, it's okay for my child to experience pain. They don't have to get punished. And recognizing that when you want to make any kind of change, it's going to be uncomfortable and it's even going to feel wrong to you. So when you see your kid doing something and your initial reaction is going to be to try to control them or control the situation or the outcome, you have to be able to challenge yourself and say, you know what, this is my controlling side coming out again and I have to be able to let go. And even for you, it's going to feel like by letting go that you're almost not loving your child, that you're not um, giving them what they deserve or you're not being a good mom. But you have to be able to challenge yourself and realize, okay, this is the controlling side of me talking again. This isn't genuine. This isn't right. And challenge that. So you have to be ready to do what feels wrong in order to make change because that's the only way to get out of your comfort zone. Okay, then you have to watch yourself all the time. Yeah, we always have to be. the minute that you are doing it, you say that's it. Yeah, and if you have someone close to you, they can help you too because they can observe you. And that's what a therapist does, but then also you can have, you know, husband or sibling or someone close to you who can help get you to see what's happening because you we can't we can't objectively see ourselves. That's why we need others to help us. Right, that that someone close to you is a great idea. I accept in that part comes my not uh, trusting others. Because well, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, that that might that that might be coming back to why you might 
feel the need to control to begin with. Hopefully with a therapist, you can explore some of that. But of course, the person we trust has to be someone that we trust. And if you don't trust anyone, well, then we're in trouble. But if you do trust someone, hopefully you can have someone that helps you with that. But, you know, I, I would hope you go to therapy first and foremost, but look at yourself always because we all have to do that in order to the, see what we're doing and see what we can do better. Do you believe in uh, counseling on the telephone like somebody online? Personally, I don't, I don't like therapy on the phone. I understand sometimes it's necessary and can be helpful. But I think in-person therapy always is much more meaningful than over the phone. And that's why for my own practice, I don't do it over the, over the phone. I yeah, think that the in-person... Because I have done it on the phone and somehow I realized that and other side is not into it. Well, you know, it's hard It's hard to get as intimate and as close emotionally yeah. when it's not in person. That's been my own experience for long-term therapy. So I hope you find someone that you can see in person yeah. and see if you can work on some of those issues. But thank you for calling. Thank you for all your help. Oh, my pleasure. Day. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Going into our last commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Faye. Hello, thanks for calling. Thanks. I have a question. Uh, I'm, um, I studied as a second career. Uh-huh. You know, I had um, two bachelor before. But uh, I still, when I want to do my exam, when I finish it, I'm, I'm sensitive about my grading. Okay. I always wanted to be, you know, 100 not mm-hmm. 95, but then I, you know, lose some of the grading, it's 91 or something like this, and I know that, I know the question, and I did mistake. I cannot get rid of them. I cannot let it go. Hmm. Well, I mean, clearly you're, you're already indicating some signs of perfectionism, uh, that you, you know, it has to be perfect, and basically when we have perfectionism means that either it's perfect or it's nothing. It's very black or white. Either I did a perfect job, which almost never happens really in most things we can't achieve perfection, or I'm a failure. And that pressure is going to lead to almost constant disappointment. Because yes, maybe on a test you can get a 100 here and there, but most of the time you're not, and that still is very, very good. But you're still going to feel like a failure, feel very bad about yourself, and that puts a lot of pressure on yourself. Is this perfectionism a theme that you see in your own life that you have a hard time accepting mistakes or making mistakes? Yes, I try to, you know, uh, work on myself most of the time, but most of that I'm very sensitive about this. I know where it's from because my mom was a you know, teacher and my dad, army, we, you know, hmm. grew up in a very disciplined, uh, you know, house uh, and are sensitive about our, you know, school. But no, at school, you know, I'm not young now i'm <laughs> almost 40 and when i go i you know just going um, you know find another career and i'm study and everybody at school that i'm good i know that i'm good enough but um why um when i uh, you know do it uh, you know i'm in the final now and i'm doing my exam mm-hmm. and you know two days ago i did exam i got 91 and I cannot let it go. I just think about why I do. I'm hmm. very good. I could, you know, answer right, but it's done. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, uh, it, it does seem like you're too hard on yourself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Even the fact that you switched careers, I wonder if th there is some perfectionism there. What led to you switching careers? Because I'm kind of my vision a problem, uh, because it's some genetic problem. I mm. cannot work on my last one. Mm -hmm. I study on another one. I work on it, but I didn't really like that. But this career that I changed, I really love because I can do my own office with this one. Um, but um, mm, I don't know. I got various quiz courses. Is uh, uh, you know I'm gonna finish. Uh, almost three years, almost in the last term, okay. and uh, I'm very good student, but I still have problem with the exam. When I'm in the final, I have lots of stress that I want to be, you know, um, very good, not about the grade. I don't know. Um, sometimes I'm thinking by myself that I said, no, it's not very important. It's not. It's really important for me. Well, yeah, it seems like it's something deeper. You can tell yourself it doesn't matter, but it seems like deep down it matters a lot. And you mentioned military father and teacher, uh, mother as a teacher. It seems like rules and right or wrong were probably a very big part of your upbringing. And another aspect of perfectionism isn't just about failure, but this feeling that if I'm not perfect, I'm not lovable or, or I'm not worth anything. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's not just about and that's what puts the pressure for a perfectionist is you're not just taking one question on one test. Every question you're taking validates whether you're worth something or not. And it's not really actually even that you're worth something. It's just that at least you've avoided the doom of not being worthless. Because then the next question comes and the same question is arising again. Am I worthless? Okay, I got this one right. And then you keep going. So the pressure is a lot. So we know you're dealing with something deep down. And I know you said, well, I'm not a kid anymore. But this is, again, how we see that as much as we'd like to think we've you know, grown up, we know that the issues of our past are going to affect us. And, and people don't like to acknowledge that or they like to sometimes think that as therapists we make these things too big of a deal. But time and time again we see that what's happened to us in our childhood we carry forward with us. So you're still that little girl too, even though you're saying you're close to 40 now, that little girl inside of you is still there who has this feeling that if she doesn't do a perfect job, she won't be loved or she's going to get disapproval or disappointment. And she's trying everything she can to not to not have that feeling because it's so scary for her. So it's a process, but if you can get yourself to see that you are not unlovable for not getting a, a perfect grade or that no one is perfect, that you're not supposed to be perfect, that you're a human being, and as a human being, basically by definition you make mistakes and that's okay that that would be important for you you know i'd even want you to do activities that aren't perfect like go do some kind of abstract art you know where you paint but not that you paint something because if you paint something you might get too focused on making it look perfect but something just abstract where you're putting colors together and making a mess where it's not specifically supposed to look like something you know i'd want you to even try activities like that to see that it, there isn't perfection. It doesn't have to be something perfect. It, it can be okay just to be what it is. Uh, what I'm thinking is that the most of the thing that I did, I was the same. I was always at first grade at the school, at university, mm -hmm. and it was very important for me. But now I, I don't want it. You know, help, I think I hurt myself. I'm going to try to be, you know, I did lots of things, you know, I'm very professional painting, I can mm -hmm. do very professional as a hobby, 
because I love painting, but my parents, they didn't like that I go to the, this other job. Hmm. Uh, but I was very good at it. And, you know, it's playing guitar, I can do that. I got some courses on it. But I, all of them, I want to be uh, very, very good. At least, you know, I got some vision problem. Hmm. And I training, you know, get my braille, uh, reading and writing. Less than uh, four years, I have finished. I got all the certificate. Practice the cane, and everybody say you are advanced. You are very good. You are very independent. But um, you know, I just keep doing. Sometimes I think that I'm making me tired. Hmm. But maybe yes, maybe I want to be lovely. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I get that feeling. I want to get rid of that, yeah. but I try hmm. to practice. I listen to your program, programs, guys, and your dad. I love this radio a lot, and they improved me a lot last two, three years that I listened to this radio. Good. And I must call to say, appreciate it. I love you guys. Hmm. And uh, but I tell you, um, practice to be better. Yeah, even when you even when you say that, it's again this this idea of performance. And first of all, thank you for your very kind words, and I'm happy to hear that. But even when you say that, you know, almost like you know, I have to do better, almost for myself or my father. You have to be better that you're not being enough or not being good. And that's yeah. that's I think your biggest issue is not feeling that you're enough and constantly feeling that pressure, where you're lovable just as you are and what you've already. Accomplish sounds amazing, but even if you didn't accomplish anything, you would still be worthy of love. And I think you didn't get that. And even the way you described that your parents didn't let you choose what you wanted to do or made you feel bad about wanting to be an artist and pushed you to go in another direction. It, it seems like from a very young age, you didn't have this feeling of just being loved for who you are, being loved for whatever you are. And you still feel that need to be something for other people or to be perfect. Um, and I'm so sorry to hear you're going through the vision issue. I think it's incredible that you're taking it head on and learning Braille and to walk uh, on your own to, and to be independent. But I'm also wondering, and I wish we had more time because I have to wrap up the show in just about a minute, to know more about you and your relationships because it seems that maybe that's missing in your life too. And because of the perfectionism or because of this feeling that you have to be a certain way, you might not allow yourself to get close to people or allow people to to really come into your life in the way that you can have them be there. So, point a very good things. Everybody, they said you are lovely, but I cannot be close to anybody. Right, because you're afraid yeah, that when yeah. they, because when the, you're afraid yeah. that when they see you up close, they're they're going to see that you're not perfect when you're not supposed to be. So I can uh, I, that makes sense to me. Again, I'm trying to make it very quick. I'd want to hear more from you. But what you described to me, I can understand you as being someone who people really like, and you can also be the person that people like, but you're afraid to let them in because once they let them in, if we let anyone too close, they're going to see that we're not perfect. But the point you're missing is that you don't have to be perfect. You are, you're perfectly lovable just as you are with your mistakes, flaws, insecurities, whatever else it might be. No one is perfect and, and no one wants you to be perfect either. So that's another part I'd want to talk about. I hope you can call back again. I really, really do because I think we just got to open some things up and I do have to wrap up the show. So okay, next week... Because, uh, yes, I love to do about, uh, you know, talk about my vision problem too. That's uh, how can I improve? How can I be independent? Hmm. A lot now, but uh, I'm not satisfied now. But, you know, I, I can't be happy. 
But I want to talk, you know, you uh, before, before, but, you know, I didn't have chance today. I had an exam and I came early uh-huh. and I had a chance to talk with you. Well, I, I'm very, appreciative, I, I'm very appreciative too. I'm very grateful that I got to talk to you. Like I said, I hope you can call back again, either, you know, on a Monday night show or a Wednesday show, and hopefully we can talk some more, okay? But yeah. thank you for calling. Hope you have a good holiday and I hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much. You uh, too. Guys. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, uh, just a quick reminder again, the cruise March 9th through 12th is the first one I'll be doing with Commercial Travel. If you want more information, you can give a call to Commercial Travel. Their numbers are 800-800-1991 and also 818-883-8100. So that's for March 9th through the 12th. Thank you to all the callers and the listeners and to Raman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day. Thank you.